Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. again it continues to be the 14th of april 2022 and it is thursday of holy week and i can tell that you're awake because you're fact checking me and you are you are texting me and i love that so for those of you who um wondered at the end of last hour whether or not uh, i was off in terms of my geographical reference it's possible that i misspoke what i intended to say is that Finland has a more than 800-mile border with Russia. And so conversations about uh, Finland and uh, Sweden joining NATO has Russia all flummoxed. So, yes, I uh, grant you that um, Sweden has Norway over the top of it. So there you go. I, I, I am looking now at a map. My I will do better in the future. I promise. Thank you for your thank you for carefully listening and communicating. I super duper appreciate it. So any errors I make during this hour could be directed to Dr. Peter Kapsner, who's going to join me in just a minute. Uh, you can text us at 877-933-2484. Have you seen the ads, the ads for The Chosen? They have a, a very special um edition coming out uh, on Easter. And have you seen across the country their billboards uh, have been defaced? Have you seen that? Had you taken note of that? Um, I thought for a moment that maybe Peter Kapsner was responsible, but I have learned subsequently that actually it's a marketing campaign. Yep. The Chosen itself is responsible for mocking vandalism uh, on its own billboards. So here's what they did. Uh, they had this like call to action to visit this URL that took users to thechosenisnotgood.com. And that website uh, then contained this invitation to get answers on April 12th at 3.33 p.m. Pacific time. And so when you tuned in for that, um, you got this like mocking, uh, devilish social profile, um, this this video, satirical video, uh, featuring the devil himself, reminiscent of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. So anyway, um, yes, obviously, people who don't like satire and people who don't like to, you know, like, <clears throat> be gotten, they, uh, they were all a Twitter, literally, uh, you know, condemning the chosen for such naughtiness. Well, it, um, you know, publicity is what it is. And if the chosen draws uh, viewers to itself by mocking itself, by, you know, by being attractive to people who might actually appreciate that uh, a chosen billboard was defaced, then so be it. Those are the people we want watching, right? Those are the people we want tuned in to the chosen. Um, the chosen is the largest fan supported show in all of history. It's the first ever series on the life of Jesus. And if you have not watched it, 
let me invite you to do so this Easter. You can do it on the Chosen's mobile app or streaming um, via Angel Studios. They have a TV app as well. Um, it's one of my favorites. So Peter Kapsner is going to join us next, and I will no longer be able to suggest nor ask if he was the one responsible for defacing the Chosen billboards, because now I know they did it themselves. All right, Peter Kapsner up next. The man who, in fact, did not climb the Eiffel Tower and add a radio signal. The man who, in fact, did not fix the broken um, chime in the clock in England. And apparently the man who did not deface the ad campaign for The Chosen. Dr. Peter Kapsner is here. What have you done lately, my friend? Well, I noticed that you left out of that list uh, that I did not steal the Darwinian letters from Cambridge. And, <laughs> oh, and I think understandably right. so, that's right? Because, because there's, I'm not yeah, convinced. I do not, have plausible, <laughs> I do not have plausible deniability <laughs> for that one. My, the, the pink bag with the letters, well, let's just say it remains in a hidden location. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Okay. Um, that did provoke a lot of people to confess that they have a bag stash. Like yes. This like pile of gift bags in a closet somewhere and that, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a problem. Well, and, and I think you and I had the idea and rightfully so that as part of the Faith Radio Share that's coming up next week, there's got to be something we can do with this stash of bags, right? We Can't we yes. pay them forward somehow? I, I don't know Some that anybody kind of... actually needs a gift bag because we all have the stash, <laughs> but it's at least worth considering. <laughs> Some sort of bag stash giveaway. Indeed. Okay. Um, bags of bags. Jonathan Haidt uh, has written a piece in The Atlantic on why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. Um, it's a massively long piece. It is. And so it's even hard to direct people to it because it's so massively long. Um, can you can you give us a digest? Yeah, that's tricky, right? Because I, I had the same thought you just said when I was reading it. Is well, Two thoughts. One, I thought this is incredibly helpful for somebody that wants to spend maybe 20, 30 minutes digesting this article. And, and I think then the second thought that I had is, is where were the, the key themes that he was trying to tease out or, or what was the point of this that, that he was then detailing? And I'm not sure that I have identified it correctly, but I do think there is one key moment in this article as he's talking about the impact of social media and, and the information age in which we live. And, and I think it's an incredibly underwritten topic is the impact of the information age. There, there's plenty of work on the industrial revolution, for example, but we're sort of in the middle of the information revolution. So we just had, we don't have a lot of idea of how it's impacted us. And the thing that really struck me, Carmen, in terms of um, how it's shifted the conversation in our country, in our families, in our schools, in our churches, is he talked about the idea that we as a people have gone from sort of quiet communities of relationships in which we share information with one another. We share life together. We probably, to some degree, have a common story. Many of us have lived under a common faith, and, and those things hold us together relationally. But he said that as soon as uh, Twitter and some of these social media sites became so popular, and this was the key moment, he said, we've gone from sharing information with one another. And, and Facebook kind of was that initially. It was just share pictures, share your dog photos, share your trip sort of thing. Uh, it, it went from sharing information to who could become viral. 
and who could become popular. And, and we began to perform for one another. Instead of living in relationship with one another, we began to perform. And then the, and the two things that came out of that, one, is we began to fight over who could become the most viral person out on the Internet. And, uh, and that was the first thing. The second thing is, is nobody really knows who to listen to anymore in terms of a voice uh, of reason. Just because you've gone viral doesn't mean that you're credible. I, I talk with my students about this all the time. I said, if you go to a YouTube video and it has 1 million hits on how to fix your lawnmower, and then you go to another YouTube video and it has 37 hits about how to fix your lawnmower, which one are you going to trust? And the students will always say, well, of course, the million hit YouTube video. Just because it has a million hits doesn't mean it's credible at all. And there's all of these uh, voices out there that have gone viral, that have performed really well, but they're not worth paying attention to. And, and the amount of anxiety and turmoil it's created as we become to perform for one another and nobody really knows who to listen to anymore. It, I would say that what he's touching on in this article is the foundation of the rise of anxiety in our culture and the mental health crisis in which we find ourselves. I know I can chart it in my classrooms in terms of just the sheer level of anxiety that's among, uh, among young people. So that was one of my main takeaways. There's so many other things we could say about this article. It was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, I know people don't appreciate the use of the word stupid to describe um, anyone, um, certainly not to describe, uh, you know, sort of the conversations of the day of which many of us um, seek to resist but find ourselves apart. Uh, and the past 10 years of American life has been uh, a serious dumbing down mm -hmm. of many, many conversations. Uh, and almost uh, it, it almost seems as if um, there must be there must be some scheme to make us less intelligent, mm. to get us talking about and focused on things that literally do not matter, could not possibly matter less um, and to to undermine our ability to discover what is true. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, as you have just pointed out, there's just so many layers of misinformation and I would suppose active disinformation out there that sifting through all of it and finding the truth has become increasingly difficult. Yeah, incredibly difficult, Carmen. I, it, one of the most helpful things that I try to do in my classroom, but honestly, it's helpful for me too. I've gotten sucked into some of this. I, I realize that as I'm writing up on the board these days and my whiteboards and having fun with the class back and forth, there are certain words that I used to be able to spell. I can't spell anymore just simply because I've been spelling them wrong out on social media all the time as part of mm. sort of our new lexicon of, of spelling choices. I, it took me, I think, about five minutes to spell sociological the other day up on the board. And, and I realized, I said, gosh, it is not helpful to my critical thinking to be out amusing myself in social media in terms of watching funny little TikTok videos for an hour. Exactly what does that do to my brain? Well, the, the brain chemistry begins to change and, and it does dumb us down. And so some of the helpful things that we try to do in class is saying, by what method do you explore that which is credible and that which is true? How do you develop a, a heart and a mind of critical thinking? And, and we take the students or I take the students through a, a four fold process where we examine the scriptures. That's the first lens you want to look at things. You begin to look at church writings and church history and faithful church tradition. That's a second lens. You, you begin to look at uh, maybe some of the sciences as sort of a lesser lens, but they do help in terms of understanding. And then you just you, you think about human experience. How have people experienced these things over time and culture? And so we'll take an issue or a question, something about relationships, something about um, politics, something. We're, we're in the middle of doing critical race theory right now in my class in terms of one of four or five 
different kinds of ways in which people have thought about their life together as a society. And just even getting into the nuance of that, Carmen, it, it feels like we're pulling ourselves out of concrete to actually have a helpful and healthy conversation to say, here's why this came up. What do we learn from that? What would be helpful to maybe reject and all of those things. But gosh, it takes hundreds of minutes in the classroom to do that work versus a, a two minute TikTok video on something. And so I, I agree. I, I don't know that stupid's not my favorite word, but I would also uh, sympathize with the idea that we really have become dumber uh, as a people in terms of our ability to critically think because we've just been amusing ourselves or fighting on the Internet for the last 10 years. All right, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner in just a moment. And yes, I'm going to answer the questions that you're asking me on the text line. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Paul, are we back on? Hello, hello. I'm going to just assume that I'm on. Okay, hello. Um, all right, so a couple of people have texted in questions um, uh, about my comments related to The Chosen just a moment ago um, and the questions that are raised um, by those asking. First of all, um, we, wanna, we, we do want to talk about people and the groups of which they are a part in the way that they talk about their groups. And so I am going to refer to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They do not refer to themselves as Mormon any longer, and so I'm going to refer to them that way. I, uh, I do know that a couple of the executive producers of The Chosen are Mormon, active in, uh, I just said I wasn't going to say that, active in uh, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and I also know that, you know, folks who are members of of that particular expression of religious um, identity, I'm not going to call it Christianity, um, those people who affiliate uh, with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints talk about why they have devoted their time and energy to what they acknowledge is a, quote, evangelical effort, evangelical effort. So you can you can find plenty of information out there um, uh, about the relationships of many, many people. Um, including that VidAngel is, as I have already, you know, said, you know, it's it's owned by people who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Mm-hmm. Let me just say this: the church, the the chosen, like everything else, is being produced by and um, broadcast by and played by sinners. All of them fallible people. Hey. You are listening to a fallible human being right now. And if you support Faith Radio, guess what? We're all fallible. We're not perfect. Um, and so, you know, are, uh, are there conversations to be had about who is producing what? Absolutely. Can God use that which is produced by fallible people to do miraculous things? That's the only people he's got. Mm. So is the chosen being used by God can I watch it? Can I use my evangelical Christian filter when I watch it? Yes, I must, and I should. Are there are there scenes in The Chosen that I disagree with? Yes, there are, but guess what? I didn't write it, um, and I'm not producing it. Can I appreciate it? Yes. Can God use it? Yes. Um, can I direct people to it? Yes. Do I do so recognizing fallible people are making it, starring in it? There's, you know, there's Roman Catholics uh, who are a part of the cast. Um, I can't... 
Okay, so there you go. <laughs> rant, and, oh, rant over. No, I, I rant like over. the rant. Though. I mean, and Carmen, you know, don't lump me into your fallibility crowd. You know, okay. I, uh, on on this, we're talking with Dr. <laughs> Peter Kapsner, and I have just um, I have just robbed our conversation of no, part of it's, its time. But Important conversation, you, yes. Here's what you unfolded right before the break, and I want to circle back around to it. You you teach your students to follow this method in exploring what's credible and true. Right. And your fourfold process you described as scripture, faithful Christians in the past, um, sciences, and human experience. Okay, I, I learned that as this fourfold, revelation, tradition, reason, experience. Right. Yeah. Okay, the- that is what has been literally turned upside down by by people today. They put experience at the top and the revelation of God at the bottom. That's exactly right. They're, they're meant to live in some degree of tension with one another. Um, theologians call it doing theology from above or the revelation and then theology from below what makes sense in the human experience. But And so it, to some degree they inform one another, but you always have to start with revelation. You always have to start with God's revealed reality and, and the beauty of his inspired word. And then from there you think about what does this mean for the human experience? But I think we have one other caveat to say about that and that there's a lot of people that have looked at the scriptures and I would say have badly misinterpreted what they had to say. And so we organize ourselves according to what we believe is true, right? I mean, that's how we do our lives, typically speaking, is whatever we think is the most valuable, whatever we think is going to be the most helpful, whatever we think is true, tends to be how we organize our lives together. And there's been a lot of interpretations of scripture that, let's just say, have been uh, found wanting. It's why there has to be a fair degree of humility when we approach what is sometimes a very difficult text, uh, the revelation of God, to understand as it's gone through some of the transmission processes of, of Greek to English and all of that. Okay, so that that being said, it, I think it circles back to the chosen conversation, is I think we have to ask the question, the better question is, is, is Jesus being faithfully represented according to the revelation and our best ability to understand it in, in God's word, because here's what I would say, Carmen, there have been plenty of evangelical institutions that over my 30 years in vocational ministry, 18 in the classroom uh, as well, where I, it, people have really harmed, people, faithful people trying to interpret the text, they've really not faithfully represented Jesus. Uh, I, there's, And so in all of that, they've brought a lot of harm. They might have been professing Christians, not professing Mormons, but they completely misrepresented Jesus. So this is where the nuance of the conversation comes in. Just to carte blanche say, somebody who's Mormon is involved in the production of the chosen. There is a conversation to be had there. But to, but to carte blanche reject it, the bigger question is, is, is Jesus being faithfully represented? Just like we should ask the same questions, just because somebody is a professing Christian, doesn't mean that they should be leading a church if they are not having a faithful representation of who Jesus is. And, oh, gosh, now we're in the middle of a lot of conversation. All right. We're talking with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Um, we, we had all kinds of things teed up to talk about today. So I am I'm sorry that I have run over that. Can we um, can we put the study of of death experiences um, on the calendar for future conversations, because we're going to talk about the resurrection, obviously, of Jesus. And so this study of death experiences, people recalling the experiences of death, we might have in the past called them near-death experiences. Um, I found it super fascinating, and it's an opportunity for us to talk about the influence of science and religion in the conversation today. No, I think that'd be fantastic. And no apology needed. I already talk too much in any given day to people when it comes to, to teaching and radio work. I think it's just an invitation, Carmen, like we've talked about in the past, that once the top of the once the hour two is done of the show, you and I can just carry on and riff about stuff. And, and maybe people like Paul can somehow have a hidden camera and people can listen into what's going so on in that last hour. I love that. So that so that's a great idea. Um, here's what we're going to do next week instead. You're going to come and join me 
um, I think, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I, yeah, I have to look back at the schedule, but Something we are like going to be on like share together. I know, yeah. I know. You and I are going to do spring fundraising together next week, um, early in the week. And so just keep this article about the study of death experiences handy, and we'll talk about it then sometime. That sounds beautiful. All right. Love you, man. Yeah, you hey, too. Hey, Dr. Peter Kapsner, you can uh, find him at, uh, at the University of Northwestern St. Paul because that's where he hangs out and teaches. Hey, we got to take a break for Breakpoint. We'll be right back. There's a news headline out of Grand Rapids that I want you to be aware of um, because I I certainly expect there to be a growing reaction and response to it across the country. Patrick Loyoya, that has two Ys in it, Lyoya. I'm going to try Lyoya. Patrick Lyoya um, immigrated to the United States from the Democratic Republic of the Congo some five years ago. On April the 4th, he was shot and killed during a traffic stop in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The officer, um, the video released by the police um, department now shows the officer is lying on top of Mr. Lyoya, um, who is unarmed. He's lying on the ground. The officer's body camera stops recording. And then Mr. Um, Lyoya is, uh, is shot in the head. Um, is it possible that he was driving a vehicle with the wrong tags? That's the reason the officer pulled him over. So, yeah, that's possible. Is it possible that he was driving without a license and um, and that's why he didn't produce one? Yeah, I mean, that's totally possible as well. Did he get out of the car when he should have remained in the car? Yeah, he did. Um, does he speak English? Yes, but not as well as you and I, likely. Did he deserve to die? No. A million times, No. Um, and so you're going to hear more conversation, I believe, um, about this story as it unfolds. Um, we do have um, we, we have a problem in America, not just one. This one has to do with race. We are racially divided. Color blindness isn't the answer. So what is? Pastor Derwin Gray is going to join us next on how to deal with our racial divide. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Derwin Gray joins us now. You can um, you can find him uh, online all over the place. So you can certainly find him at Transformation Church. We're talking today about his new book, How to Deal with Our Racial Divide. Derwin, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's good to be with you again. All right. It's good to have you here. Um, so we are divided. We do have a racial divide. We have heard all kinds of ways in the past that we might... Um, heal it, uh, that we might overcome it. How is How to Heal Our Racial Divide different from other books on the same topic? Yeah, you know, so so let me say this. Uh, in light of Easter, the resurrection, Romans eight twenty nine says this, for whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, the firstborn of many brothers and sisters from the dead. And so Jesus himself, in his humanity, the second person of the Trinity becomes fully man. And as being a human, he's the last Adam. 
So his resurrection is the beginning of a new race of people. And this new race of people is made up of all of the ethnicities of the world because God made a promise to Abraham. And so Jesus's promise to Abraham or God the Father's promise to Abraham is fulfilled by Jesus. And so God gets a family that is endowed with the resurrection power covered by the blood. And this family is called to love each other, to display that we are his disciples. And so what makes my book different is I take people back to the heart of the gospel. Sadly, many Christians do not believe that the good news can be a good solution to this issue. And so either we ignore it and say it doesn't exist, we don't want to get involved, or we go to secular sources and a sociological solution cannot fix a theological problem. A theological problem can only fix by a theological solution in the person of Jesus. So when people read this book, they're never going to read the Bible the same again. We're going to, we're going to see how Jesus was not only trying to dismantle all sin, but the sin of racism was deep and thick in the first century Greco-Roman world. It was actually worse then than it is now. And it was his resurrection power in his people that compelled them, transformed them to love each other across demonic barriers. Yeah, and when you talk about um, how that happens and you give biblical examples, I'm wondering if there's a New Testament example that comes to mind where this sin of racism is radically broken, um, you know, in, in resurrection community among God's people. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, there's so many. And in a book, I, I write about it, but I'll go to a familiar story, the Good Samaritan. The context is Luke 10, 25 through 33, where Jesus is talking to a religious leader about what's the most important commandment. And he says, love God, love your neighbors, you love yourself. The religious leader says, who is my neighbor? Because in the first century for a Jewish man, his neighbor would have been another Jew because there was so much animosity and ethnic hatred with Gentiles. Think about this. Gentiles had enslaved Jews in Egypt, had terrorized them, Babylonians, Canaanites, Hittites, and now they were under Roman occupation. So they didn't get along well with Gentiles. And so Jesus shares this incredible story about a good Samaritan who stops and helps a Jewish man on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He touches his wounds, he bandages him, puts him on his donkey, pays for an end. This would have never happened in that world because Jews and Samaritans had a 700 year ethnic feud. And Jesus shows us how to break the cycle of violence and racism by the cycle of love. Is He says the Samaritan is the one who reflects what God's love looks like. And what's interesting about a Samaritan is they were comprised, their ethnicity was Babylonian and Jew, and they became the Samaritans. So Jew and Gentile in one body. What's the church supposed to be? Jew and Gentile in one body. So in the story of the Good Samaritan, we see the cycle of prejudice and racism broken. And we also see a picture of the multi-ethnic church in the Samaritan. So the challenge, I think, for us is actually believing and obeying the gospel. Um, racism and racial injustice is a sin, just like pornography. 
And so for some re reason, we've allowed dark powers to blind us to this reality. You know, the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles, I don't think that we, um, that we appreciate just how radical that was um, in the early church and as accounted for in the book of Acts. I just, I, I don't think that we appreciate um, how radical an idea that would have been to the Jews of the day and the Christian Jews of the day as well. We're talking with Pastor Derwin Gray. We're talking about his brand new book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide. It is a it is a different approach to the conversation um, about racism um, because it's a gospel conversation. And uh, he points out here that, you, you know, you cannot answer a theological question or solve a theological problem with a sociological solution. And so how can you solve it? Well, you can solve it um, theologically. And so that's what he does in this book. Um, Derwin, this is really a book about biblical interpretation. Like, it's yeah. really... That's really what it is. I mean, sneaky way for a pastor to get us reading hermeneutics. Um, but that's what you're doing here. Um, talk about Jesus as the key to rightly interpreting Scripture. Yeah, you know, uh, so in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is in conversation with the Pharisees, and he tells them this. He, he says, you pour over the Scriptures daily because you think in them you have eternal life, but the Scriptures testify to me. And so you can have a person that loves the Bible, but doesn't love Jesus. You can have a person that loves the Bible, but doesn't love people. You can have a person that loves the Bible, but they use it as a weapon. All of scripture testifies to Jesus. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in John 5, the New Testament wasn't written. He's speaking of the Old Testament. The New Testament is simply citations from the Old T Testament redefined around Jesus as the promise, Lord King of the universe to establish his kingdom. And, and so let me hit back on something that you said is we don't really appreciate the Jews and the Gentile distinction because most Gentiles think they're Jews. Whatever majority culture of a country you're in, you think you're the Jews. No, no, no. We are the Gentiles unless we're ethnic Jews. But the beauty of the gospel is the Jewish Messiah says, I rose from the dead to create this new race of grace that brings in all of the beautiful ethnicities because my father made a covenant to Abraham. So what I'm trying to do in how to heal our racial divide is take us deeper into understanding scripture, deeper into understanding the gospel, deeper in how to love, but also when we love each other across ethnic boundaries that the devil hates, it's a form of resistance to the dark powers and it's a model to the world. How in the way and how is the world going to have any hope if we as the church are more racially divided than the actual world itself that doesn't know Christ? And so I'm praying that this book would turn from a message to a movement, and you're not going to read the Bible the same. You're going to view people differently, and the gospel is going to get bigger. Jesus didn't just forgive our sins. When he rose from the dead, he included us in a family with different colored skins. Every nation, tribe, and tongue has been purchased by King Jesus. If Jesus died for everyone, we should treat everyone like Jesus died for them, and never forget that 
Jesus loves people you don't like. Yeah, God wants them all. Sometimes I don't, but God does. God wants them all. Uh, We're going to continue our conversation with Pastor Derwin Gray in just a moment. We're talking about, um, you know, how we deal with our racial divide. Uh, It's a brand new book, How to Heal Our Racial Racial Divide. And um, yeah, I don't think we have copies to give away, but I sure do wish we did. So you guys can check it out um, uh, online. um, And we're going to continue this conversation with Derwin in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We think of O Holy Night as a Christmas hymn. I want you to reconsider it as an Easter hymn, a reconciliation hymn, a hymn for us today. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Um, We're continuing our conversation with Pastor Derwin Gray. You can find him at Derwin L. Gray. I had to make sure the L was in there. DerwinLGray.com. We're talking about uh, his brand new book and healing our racial divide. So um, how do we heal our racial divide? Um, Derwin, let's um, let's talk about the difference between color blindness and color blessedness. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's it's interesting, particularly for my white brothers and sisters, Um they will say, hey, I'm colorblind. And I get the sentiment behind it. I think it comes from a good place. But I think God wants us to be more than just blind to someone's ethnicity and color. I believe God wants us to be color blessed. And I believe that because God has created a beautiful array of diversity within the human race. And all of these different ethnicities is color and culture. And so when someone says, hey, Derwin, I don't see your color, I'm colorblind. My response is, why would you mute the beautiful color and culture that God has given me? Whenever we mute someone's color and culture, we're muting the creative genius of God. And when we mute the creative genius of God, we ourselves are missing out. And so we don't want to be colorblind. We want to be color blessed. And every ethnicity is the image of God. And at the end of the book of Revelation, in the new heaven and new earth, we see every nation, tribe, and tongue that was purchased by Christ. We're taking our colors and our ethnicity into eternity in a new heaven and new earth. And so we don't want to be colorblind. We want to be color blessed. And on the negative side, when we say we're colorblind, it really kind of spiritually paralyzes us and blinds us to the fact that there are people who are not our color and our ethnicity who are experiencing injustices. But if I'm colorblind, it can almost make me ignore it. But when I'm color blessed, I can say, wait a minute, because I follow Jesus, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere, to quote Dr. King, And because we're a part of the same body of Christ, if you hurt, I hurt. And so what I'm trying to do in How to Heal Our Racial Divide is create a more compassionate people rooted in the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And Carmen, if I can tell you a story about colorblind, right? So 
our church is probably 55% white and our church is not diverse because we focus on diversity. Our church is diverse because we focus on the gospel and we believe in a holistic gospel that brings people together around the cross, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. And so we'll have uh, white members of our church adopt black kids, particularly black little boys. And when the little boys are little, they're cute. But when they hit about 16 or 17, they go from cute to a threat. And a lot of the white parents will come to me and say, Pastor, we had no idea that it was this tough for black people because our white son is treated very differently than our black son. We we just didn't know. Can you help us? And of course, I give empathy and I give advice, but then I look at them and, and say, how could you have not known your black siblings in Christ have been telling you for so long? See, when the problem comes home to knock at your door, it's different than when the problem is at someone else's door. And what I'm saying is, because we're the multicolored body of Christ, your problem is my problem, my problem is your pr problem, because we are the body of Christ. And yet, Derwin, I think, you know, to be honest, we don't feel it, we don't experience it, because it's not our in-fleshed reality. I mean, I there is a difference in like knowing in my head that something is happening and feeling it in my bones. There's a difference. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. And I think it comes down to one word. Well, actually, to faith leading to obedience is I don't have mm. to feel something to walk in it and believe it. Mm. And so what I'm saying is a lot of times, sadly, and I mean this with all respect, uh, there will be people that come to our church and go, how come no one ever taught me this? And a lot of gospel preaching is do's and don'ts, and it's very much individualistic and vertical, meaning believe in Jesus, trust him. Well, yeah, that's true. Jesus does save me, but he saves me to put me into a family, to join the family business which is love and go make disciples of all ethnos. That means not only different ethnicities across the sea, but across the street, that we're to be a lover of people. And love is not sentimental. Love looks like the cross. It's bloody, it's sacrificial. It will cost you something. It will cost you your political partisanship. It will cost you your bigot thoughts. It will cost you family and friends, but whatever the cost is, Jesus repays with grace. So we have a listener question from Katie, um, and, and I think it is answered in the Miracles Happen Around Food part of your book. So here's her mm -hmm. question. How can we become more racially diverse as a church? Our church is mainly white. I live near Minneapolis. We derive our roots from Norwegian Lutheranism, and it's very traditional, including the use of liturgy and old hymns. I'm not sure um, how to help in this situation, but I surely want to. Um, miracles happen around food. Is that a part of the answer? <laughs> it is. You know, it's interesting. Jesus fed 5,000 people on one side of the Sea of Galilee and 4,000 on the other side. One side was Jew. One side was Gentile. Back then, the Jews and Gentiles were not separated by train tracks. They were separated by a lake. And so when Jesus does those two feeding miracles, it is in reference to the future of Abraham's banquet, Matthew 8, where Jesus says, 
Gentiles from the east and the west will come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banquet. And so what I would say is, I'm not sure your Lutheran church in a white cultural context is a place to invite your minority friends, but your dinner table is. Yeah. Who's at your dinner table? Who do you go to eat with? Who do your children see you in relationship with? And so we have to be the ones to bridge the, the gap. And so I'm a proponent for planting multi-ethnic churches because it's easier to do than transitioning one. But Minneapolis is one of the most diverse cities in the United States of America. And so pray for God to build relationships. My hope and my prayer is the same way we love ethnic food would be the same way that we love mm -hmm. ethnic people because we are a people of love. Our God is a God of love. He's risen from the dead. I'm writing this book so that we can rise from the dead and partner with Jesus to show the world that racism and racial injustice and bigotry, all those things are sins that Jesus subdued and defeated if only we would learn how to walk in his gospel truth. That's why I wrote the book. Every page bleeds with Jesus. Every page is tear-stained because I want to see Jesus honored. I want to see Jesus glorified. I don't want Jesus to be a, a, a laughing stock in this country that the church is not the solution, but the problem. And this has been a historical narrative in the mm -hmm. 60s. Civil rights, white evangelicalism was not involved. A lot of times there were denominations formed around the institution of slavery. And so it's time for the church to stand up in the resurrection power of Jesus and say, no more. So, but it, we have to learn. I wrote this book as like, I'm your coach. I'm walking with you. I'm your New Testament scholar. I'm your pastor. I'm holding your hand. There are questions and prayers at the end of the book. There's even practices. So what I want everybody to do is call your friends, buy several copies, get in a small group and read it together, then obey what you learn. And let's turn this message into a movement. And we may not see the mountaintop. It may be our children, but at least we can prepare the way for them. All right. And maybe in that um, small group conversation, be sure that it's uh, ethnically diverse. Like, Absolutely. let's start there and uh, and let's uh, share a meal together while we're doing it. Derwin, um, as always, thank you so much. The new book is How to Heal Our Racial Divide. You can find it and lots of other resources and connect with Derwin at his website, derwinlgray.com. Um, Derwin, as always, thank you so much uh, and blessed Easter. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. All right. If you're not following him on social media, he's a great social media follow as well. Um, his Twitter feed is really fun. There's a lot about football there. Um, and so that's a, a fun joy as well. Um, we're going to close today with a Maundy Thursday, just acknowledgement of the sacrifice of Christ for us. What Jesus um, has done for us, and you're going to walk with him in these next couple of days, all the way to the cross and to the grave, um, and then spend Saturday in a holy silence. And I just want this to be an opportunity for us to consider what Christ has done on our behalf. He did for us what we could not do to achieve for us 
what we desperately long for, and that is reconciliation with God. And it absolutely should result in reconciliation with one another, regardless of our differences. So uh, my friends, have a blessed and grace-filled day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.